You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for February 2022. I am your host, Shelley Wood, Managing Editor at TCTMD.com. This is the podcast where I sum up some of the top cardiology news we covered in the weeks gone by, letting you eavesdrop on some of the interviews the TCTMD journalists did to write their stories. And February, of course, was Heart Month. As I see it, Heart Month is all about making sure patients understand their risks and take steps to minimize that. More than ever, it seems one of the biggest threats to health is medical misinformation. What better place to kick off this month's podcast? As you have no doubt heard, lists of athletes who have died of sudden cardiac arrest allegedly after receiving a COVID-19 vaccine have been making waves on social media. I'm not even a cardiologist and I've been getting texts from friends asking me about this, so I can only imagine what actual doctors are hearing. The notion that COVID-19 vaccines might cause sudden deaths in athletes has been circulating for months, given new fuel over the last few weeks after being raised by both a U.S. senator and a former basketball star. One such claim, for example, is that 108 FIFA-registered players or coaches have died over a six-month period after receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. Yikes! But really? This sounded like a great story for TCTMD's Todd Neal to dig into. Todd reached out to FIFA directly, and they responded saying that the organization is, quote, not aware of any scientifically validated link between COVID-19 vaccination and deaths in footballers. But of course, FIFA would say that. To be on the safe side, Todd called up a range of sports cardiologists, including chair of the American College of Cardiology's Sports and Exercise Cardiology Council, the chair of the Sports Cardiology and Exercise section of the European Association of Preventive Cardiology, and they both said that this is a non-issue in the sports cardiology community. People aren't discussing it or worried about it because they simply haven't seen anything to suggest this link is real. But what about cardiologists actually working directly with professional athletes? Todd turned to Ankit Shah of MedStar Heart and Vascular Institute in Baltimore, who is the team cardiologist for the Baltimore Orioles and USA Swimming, as well as a cardiology consultant for the Baltimore Ravens and Washington Capitals. Shaw said many of the same things as Jonathan Dresner on the opposite side of the country at the University of Washington Medical Center for Sports Cardiology in Seattle. Dresner, in addition to being the editor-in-chief of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, is also the team physician for the Seattle Seahawks, O.L. Reign, and the Washington Huskies. I highly recommend you read Todd's feature story on TCTMD. Find it in one of those feature boxes on the TCTMD homepage. And go ahead and share it with friends and relatives concerned by the online rumors. In this clip, Todd has just asked Dresner whether there is any truth to the claims of a link between COVID-19 vaccines and sudden death. No, is the short answer. I think those links are completely false information and misinformation. Through our research with the National Center for Catastrophic Sports Injury Research, you know, we do our best to monitor all cases of sudden cardiac arrest and death in competitive athletes across the U.S. from middle school through professional athletes. And 
to my knowledge, I am not aware of any COVID-19 vaccine-related athletic deaths that's occurred. And so these social media um, links that show hundreds of cases are simply false. And many of those cases have other diagnosed conditions and even occurred before the pandemic uh, started. So there's nothing to this. Completely handing off a patient from one anesthesiologist to another during cardiac surgery is associated with significantly higher risks of mortality, as well as longer stays in the ICU and hospital. That is the takeaway from a study led by Louise Sun of the University of Ottawa Heart Institute in Ontario, Canada, published earlier this month in JAMA Network Open. Sun and colleagues looked at over 100,000 patients who underwent cardiac surgery between 2008 and 2019, focusing on outcomes of cases that involved the complete handover of anesthesia care. In all, 1.9% of surgeries in that period involved the complete transfer of anesthesia care, and the rate of handovers actually increased over time from 0.7% of cases in 2008 to 2.9% in 2019. Among patients undergoing cabbage, valve surgery, or aortic procedures, complete interoperative handoff of anesthesia care was associated with a significantly higher risk of death at 30 days and one year, as well as longer stays in the ICU and hospital. Michael O'Reardon covered this one for TCTMD. He spoke with Sun, who explained that even though the incoming anesthesiologist is provided with the patient's complete history, including critical patient and procedure-related information, some, quote, intangible details might be lost in the handoff, contributing to worse outcomes. Here's part of how Sun explained it to Mike. It's almost like... Um gestalt or like yeah. a spidey sense yeah, about exactly. a patient, like yeah. a gut feeling, right, that's lost during the process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you may forget to um, convey an important piece of information that happens to the best of us, but it's also this intuitive sense that's lost. Say, you know, this particular patient responds better to this odd dose of medication X mm-hmm. better than medication Y. And, and you know, it, it, it can't really explain it, but it just works better. Mm-hmm. So when you reach for something, it may work better for you after you spend this many hours with the patient already, whereas the new person has to go in and figure it all out again. Mm-hmm. So if handover happens during a critical period of surgery, it's not a good time to figure it out. Right, right. Patients with hypertension have long been told to avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs like ibuprofen because they can both increase blood pressure and interfere with certain antihypertensives. Many are counseled to instead use acetaminophen, known as paracetamol in the United Kingdom, both for short-term and chronic pain needs. A randomized study published this month in Circulation might prompt a rethink. For the Paracetamol in Hypertension Blood Pressure Study, or PATH-BP, Ian McIntyre of the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, Scotland, and colleagues randomized 110 people with hypertension to receive one gram of acetaminophen four times daily or matched placebo for two weeks. 
After that, there was a two-week washout period before the participants crossed over to the alternate treatment. Of the 103 patients who completed both arms of the protocol, regular use of acetaminophen from baseline until the end of the study increased mean daytime systolic BP, the primary endpoint, as well as mean daytime diastolic BP. Similar changes were observed for both 24-hour ambulatory and clinical blood pressure. As senior author David Webb of the Queen's Medical Research Institute in Edinburgh told TCTMD, the study results suggest that physicians may have been lulled into a, quote, false sense of security with paracetamol, at least for patients juggling both high blood pressure and chronic pain. That number is not insignificant, but nor is this news all bad. Here's part of Webb's conversation with TCTMD's Yael Maxwell. This doesn't apply to people who use the odd paracetamol for a couple of days for headaches or for temperatures or, you know, for their children with a temperature. This doesn't mean paracetamol shouldn't be used in the short term. But if you are taking paracetamol regularly in the longer term, and that's usually people with chronic pain, Mm -hmm. then it would be good to just make sure the blood pressure is not a problem in those people and to make sure that they're on the lowest possible dose of paracetamol that controls pain. And I guess those would be my, my take-home messages. It's about, about 8% of the U.S. population have chronic pain, and one in three U.S. adults has hypertension. It's a decent number of people we're talking about. And um, the rise in blood pressure of five millimeters of mercury is equivalent to maybe losing one blood pressure tablet. So if you could get rid of the paracetamol, then you might need one less tablet. or, Or maybe for somebody with mild hypertension, no tablets at all. So it will be a win to try and avoid using paracetamol where it wasn't essential. Back in 2019, the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, or SKY, released the first edition of their expert consensus cardiogenic shock categories. Late last month, they released an update that the authors say helps to add some nuance to aid decision-making and incorporate some important validation data. You might recall that we saw a sneak peek at these updates at the TCT 2021 meeting, Now, full details are being published in the newly launched Journal of the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions. If shock is your thing, you're going to have to check out the full details in our story by Caitlin Cox, who points out that this update has three key additions. For one, it offers a three-axis model illustrating cardiogenic shock evaluation and prognostication. It provides some streamlining and revisions to the table listing the various shock categories, although the five categories themselves, A, B, C, D, and E, have not changed. A third key change, however, is some clarification on cardiac arrest as a risk modifier. As a teaser, here is Srihari Nadu of Westchester Medical Center in Valhalla, New York, who led the latest version, explaining the genesis of the document, where it's gone from there, and why this update was needed. Essentially, when we first took a stab at this, I think it really caught like wildfire because there was nothing out there. There was nothing that would allow people to even communicate it. So people were happy with just having um, a lexicon itself. Just the A, B, C, D, E was good enough. 
But then I think, um, and it really spread fast, as we see from both database evaluations, the multiple publications, and how fast it went throughout the world, both in terms of altmetric score, but also in terms of just hearing people talk about it on Twitter, and, oh, that's a, that's a Sky Shot C stage patient, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. And we, we really were proud that we didn't have any naysayers. That being said, it was very clear that when we went through the validation studies, even though it tracked quite well in all different patient groups, there's quite a variability in terms of the predicted mortality or the predicted survival. So it was one part of the picture, but not the full picture. And we want to get ahead of the curve and realize that for this to be very impactful and to continue to make inroads into um, cardiology and cardiogenic shock in general, uh, regardless of which practitioner is taking care of these patients, it really has to ultimately not just be easy to use and available, but it has to be effective, effective in risk gratification and effective in mortality prediction and effective in use in clinical trials. So we realized that, that to do that, we had to add more granularity. There have been a number of recent TAVI trials and registry analyses comparing outcomes following transcatheter valve replacement in patients with either tricuspid or bicuspid aortic valves, a pressing question as the technology moves into younger, lower-risk patients. By comparison, there are almost no data looking at these kind of comparisons following surgical valve replacement, according to Suyoshi Kaniko of the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Kaniko, along with Samir Herji, also of the Brigham, analyzed data on 65,000 patients from over 1,140 centers in the United States undergoing index isolated SAVR between 2011 and 2018, all of which were captured in the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Adult Cardiac Surgery Database. They found that patients with bicuspid aortic valve stenosis who undergo SAVR do as well as those with tricuspid valves, with a surprising signal emerging as time went on. That's something that cardiologists may want to keep in mind when making the decision to send a patient for SAVR or TAVI. Laura McEwen covered this analysis for TCTMD when it was presented at the annual SDS meeting late last month. Here's part of her conversation with Kaniko. The SAVR outcomes in these bicuspid patients were excellent. Interestingly, the, uh, the short-term data between the trileaflet valves and the bicuspid patients were the same um, at 30 days, but their survival curve started to separate um, after one year, and it was quite significant at five years. Um, bicuspid patients were living much, much better um, in terms of their survival rates compared to the trileaflet counterparts. Mm-hmm. And this is even after adjustment. The growing narrative that we hear, you know, more and more these days around aortic stenosis is about lifetime management, right? So when you look at some of these reductions in the readmissions for a variety of things, you know, from a practical consideration, are these data useful, do you think, to be able to share with patients to talk about their long-term risk of things? Absolutely. And um, I think it is very, very important to understand the real excellent outcomes if you undergo surgery in these bicuspid patients Mm -hmm. because they tend to be young. They're going to live for a long period of time, and they have to understand that it's not just now. It's also about long-term outcomes. That is it for the Heart Sounds podcast this month. 
I hope you caught last month's episode featuring critical care cardiologist and professional artist Nazanin Mogbeli on how art offers both a refuge from and insights into her clinical practice. Todd Neal was covering the International Stroke Congress this month, and you can find his stories from that meeting under the Conferences tab on TCTMD, which is also where you'll find all of our coverage from the recent STS and THT meetings. If you have a news tip for us or any feedback about our work or the Heart Sounds podcast, drop me a line. I am at swood at tctmd.com, or you can find me on Twitter as ShellyWood2. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.